This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So today we're continuing our series, The Vocabulary of Faith, with the idea of what happens after we die. That idea is usually called the afterlife, but this could be more aptly titled eternal life. We're talking about what happens during our human experience and thus what will happen or continue after. We're asking what is heaven and what is hell. I remind you that the whole purpose of this series was to try to begin to get us all as a community on the same page to try in some ways to put definition to these words and also to sometimes break apart our said prior definitions and beliefs. We are trying to dig in together to freshly look at these beautiful and weighty words that help to define our spirituality. We are trying to determine what do these words actually mean and more importantly, what do they point to? I feel a little like Stan is smirking wherever he is. He's hiding in the back somewhere. He talked about us drawing straws earlier, and so he got announcements. But I get the afterlife to talk about on the day that I preach. I'm like, no, no small feat to talk about, that, uh, talk about that which no one has actually experienced. So John Shelby Spong says this, I cannot look at death and its meaning except from the vantage point of one who is alive. I cannot talk about the divine except from the perspective of human. So I can confidently say this morning that I believe that life after death, life after literally the moment when we organically quit functioning, that life then has no meaning unless there is life that is before death. See, we are living in eternity right now. If you think about um, the eternity last forever this way and forever this way. And our human experience is just right here in the middle. It's simply here marked by the increments of human time, but we're in the middle of eternity now. So I start with confessing a few things. That the point of today's message is not to nail down any definition with ultimate security. That would be futile. Also, as I began my research on this, first of all, I learned so much. And I realized that the material on this is vast and eternal, no pun intended, eternal in the best sense of the word. So Stan's and my um, initial hope to discuss all of this in one day was ideal and not going to happen. And that's okay. (laughs) So my hope is instead to focus on breaking down our previous assumptions specifically on hell, to dig into what our tradition has to say, what it actually has to say and what we have been taught, and then to look at the future with great hope and to let that affect our life here and now. St. Francis of Assisi says, it is in giving that we receive, it is in loving that we are loved, it is in forgiving that we are forgiven, and it is ultimately in dying that we will live. I want to start this morning by looking at and touching on the various differences in how the majority of us in Christianity grew up believing about heaven and hell. If you grew up a very conservative Christian or in a very conservative denomination or like a Southern Baptist like me, we grew up, and I can assume that you were taught the idea that you were born, we are born, separated from God, that our human journey is on a destination headed, unfortunately, to hell and to eternal damnation. And that that is what we deserve as sinners. Because none of us were promised tomorrow, hopefully early on in your life you chose to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to become a follower of Christ, and in doing so, we guaranteed our spot in heaven. 
Now, of course, there's nuances to this belief in Stan's denomination. Um, your security in heaven was established as you stayed on top of each and every one of your sins. You had to confess and then receive forgiveness and grace and then get your security. But that would be lost as soon as you sinned again. At least for us Baptists, we quit worrying about hell after we said the sinner's prayer. <laughs> now, it didn't affect much how we lived, but at least we were eternally secure, right? So... The choice few who got it right, who heard and responded to the call of Jesus, we were the ones who would have mansions and walk streets of gold after we made it past those pearly gates. But the majority of humanity, both past and future, would spend eternity burning in hell. If you were like me and you grew up with that, raise your hand. Yes, most of us. Okay. Now, there's another option within our Christian tradition, another that has scriptural reference, and that is of the annihilation of the wicked. It is the belief that apart from salvation by way of Jesus, the punishment then of human beings is in their total destruction. Rather than everlasting torment, these people will simply cease to be. These, uh, our Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters, they believe this, and it also became a much more popular option in the 1980s when other Christians and several prominent evangelical theologians, including John Stott, um, Stan just brought me a book out from his library by John Stott. It's got over two and a half million copies. It's in its 50th um, rendition of it. John Stott is a prominent evangelical theologian, and he endorses this. Also, Greg Boyd, who was recently here with us, he endorses annihilation of the wicked. So eternal life then only exists in God. So they are saying outside of Christ, there is not eternal torture. You would simply cease to be, which C.S. Lewis said would be the greater punishment. Okay, did any of you grow up believing this? Paul? Two, okay, back here, two, yes, there's two. It's a part of our Christian faith. Okay, the third major Christian option that also, as the others, can be plausibly constructed from scripture is often called universalism or universal reconciliation or it's sometimes called Christian inclusivism. It is the doctrine that says all human souls because of the divine love and mercy of God will ultimately be reconciled to God that all will be saved through Jesus Christ and eventually come to harmony in God's kingdom, that God's love will triumph in the end, and he will truly be victorious as God successfully reconciles all of those whom God has loved into existence in the first place. Now, did any of you grow up believing that? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. See, so often, though, the majority of the room, you saw where we were, how we grew up. So often, we as humans, we want there to be this win-lose paradigm. We need there to be two sides. We need to clarify who is in and who is out. It seems to be in our nature to do so. There must be a good side and a bad side. Thus, we have desperately needed a heaven for us and then a hell for everyone else. I would like us to first focus on our idea of hell in general. For most of us, and most of our culture, in fact, look at any of the movies, we have this depiction of hell as the domain of Satan. Hell is the place of the fire that won't be extinguished. Hell is a place of eternal suffering and insatiable longing. A very important thing for us to realize, first off, is that there is no even consistency in the Bible's teaching on death or on life after death. No even consistency. 
So for Paul, our revered apostle, and the early church, the idea of hell and eternal punishment barely existed. It barely existed. Most of what they knew was from their scriptures, which was our Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Often used in those scriptures is the word sheol. You may be familiar with it. It literally means grave. It was believed to be the place below us, the place within earth itself to which every soul traveled after death, accompanying its body. Sheol was not for those who didn't accept salvation. Sheol was not a place of torment. Sheol was for everyone. And we have to remember that for ancient Israel, it was a three-tiered universe. And most of the scripture that we read and has to be read and understood from that vantage point. Heaven was the first tier. It was the residence of God above the clouds, always above us. So when we read scripture like, I will lift mine eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? It comes from above because that's where God was. And then earth, earth was here all of creation from earth's surface to the clouds. And then below them, the third sheer, uh, tier was Sheol. Sheol was a subterranean place of the dead in the belly of the earth. It's very important for us to understand that most of the Old Testament occurrences of that word Sheol, that they are not speaking of eternal afterlife. There was no belief in that. It simply meant this is where the bodies went after death. John M. Sweeney, in his book, Inventing Hell, states, The Jewish ethics of this day were that death will come, and if there is anything after death, we have no clue. So do what is right, right now. Do what is right, right now. So when we look at certain verses in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 139, 7-8, we're going to put it up on the screens. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, how many of you grew up and that word was hell in your Bible? Do you remember memorizing this verse? Yes, we grew up saying, if I made my bed in hell. Now, hell means an altogether different thing than Sheol does. The Psalms is saying, if I make my bed in Sheol, God is with me. There is no place of separation from God. See, it's very interesting to realize what happens early on in our English translations of the Bible. As Christians, unfortunately, we are notorious for taking Jewish words and making them fit into what we want them to be. So eventually, Sheol becomes translated as hell. Another example of uh, our Christian changes come with the story of garden, the Garden of Eden. I don't know about you, but I grew up um, being taught that in the Garden of Eden, Satan was there as the serpent, that that was the devil himself. And yet, neither Satan nor the devil are actually ever mentioned in the text. Never. We have to pay attention to what we have learned, to what we have been taught, and we have to continue to seek truth. There's altogether 65 references to Sheol in the text. So with the King James Version, this uh, English translation, 31 of those references were translated to grave, three to pit, and then the other 31 were translated to hell. Sheol is a very different concept for them than hell is for us. So when did it change? The Jewish people in Jewish life, death was not connected with honor or with reward until the second century before the common era. When it was connected, it was primarily driven by the concept of divine justice. With their martyrs, these Hebrew martyrs, there had to be some redemptive feature connected to their deaths, such as receiving the reward of faithfulness in the afterlife. 
Now, there's one reference in the Old Testament in Daniel, and then there's a few in the New Testament by our gospel writers, specifically Matthew and the author of Revelation, and they give us our fiery version of hell. They use words like Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word, or in the Hebrew reference in the Old Testament, the word was the Valley of Hinnon. It's referenced over 26 times in Scripture, but Gehenna is not hell. Gehenna is a proper noun of an actual place. It's a valley south of Jerusalem, notorious for a place where they committed child sacrifice. So the prophets announced then Gehenna to be a metaphorical place, yes, notorious for God's judgment and fire. And although it's a metaphor, we still have to ask, what is it pointing to? So now, we catch up on the books that were written later in the Hebrew Bible, and then obviously the books that are written later are New Testament. Some of the rumblings of the afterlife basically had less to do then with their Jewish upbringing, and it had everything to do with the influence of Greek and Roman mythology, which was the culture that they now lived in as they're writing these things. Then one of our first century theologians, a revered theologian, Thomas Aquinas, he would also speak into our current view of hell. He's one of the reasons why some of us believe this way, because he's influenced us. Listen to this quote by Thomas. The magnitude of the punishment matches the magnitude of the sin. Now, a sin that is against God is infinite. The higher the person against whom it is committed, the graver the sin. Thomas says, it is more criminal to strike a head of state than a private citizen. And God is of infinite greatness. Therefore, an infinite punishment is deserved for a sin committed against him. Those are Thomas's words. And yet we find Jesus saying, as much as you've done unto the least of these, you have done unto me. You've done unto me. Most scholars would also say that our most influential picture of hell today as a place of torture predominantly took shape, not because of the Jewish idea of the afterlife, not because of the occurrences in the gospel of hell, not because of Jesus' teachings on it, but because of Dante's book, Inferno. There was little agreement with Christians before Dante gave words and setting to what hell looks like. And this was in 1321. 1321. Scott McKnight, a prominent theologian today, he wrote in his book, One Life, he says, I hope I believe in hell as Jesus believed in hell. I don't believe in hell as a glassy furnace in which people are scorched forever and ever. I don't believe in God as grand torturer. I don't believe in Dante's hell. Now, I tell you all of this to the very least give us some pause and some time for our own intentional study of how we got to believe what we do Most of us grew up with a teaching and simply trusted our pastors and our church to do the work for us. And I believe most of us, though, have been misinformed. So today and every week, we are trying simply to just whet your appetite for this. We're going to start sending you resource lists of books that we've read to prepare for these sermons and these series of resources that you can tap into. And we'll start with that this afternoon. I'm going to email you guys that. Richard Rohr states this, the only language available to religion is metaphor. And sometimes religion doesn't have the humility to know that. The only language available to religion is metaphor. And sometimes religion doesn't have the humility to know that. So metaphor, we see in a passage in Luke, Luke mentions hell as torment and then immediately mentions heaven as the bosom of Abraham. 
They are both metaphors. That bosom of Abraham, that's a beautiful metaphor in which we must allow to point us to a great truth without needing necessarily to take hold of that as an actual reality. Eternal punishment or fire is spoken of only in Matthew. But we have to remember or know that the word that we translated into eternal is the Hebrew word olam, which does not necessarily mean time without end. So their word olam, the original word, doesn't equal our word for eternity. That's going to bring us later to the idea of purgatory, a period of time until God's purpose was accomplished. First, it must be taken seriously, the context of these scriptural writings, the first century church, even looking to the book of Acts, Acts lacks any reference to hell. There is judgment, yes, they speak of judgment, but hell, no, no. Something scripture does speak clearly about is that there is judgment for us all. But I don't think we can talk about judgment without also talking about the idea of scriptural justice. Walter Brueggemann says that justice in the Bible is preeminently a relational bond that links persons together in a community of mutual responsibility and mutual rights. Specifically, biblical justice defines and creates a relationship between a holy God and God's people and with one another in a community of faith. Biblical justice is taking care of one another. It is the act of loving your neighbor and acting out of that love to make sure that others have what they need, even if it means giving them some of yours. Biblical justice goes beyond our individual responsibility to care for one another and requires us to take on the institutions of our world when, and there always is a when, when they fail to care for the whole when they fail to care for the least and for the needy. Biblical justice, first and foremost, is relational. See, there's a notion that you and I grew up with, a notion of justice, that's very different than that. It's quid pro quo, a Latin phrase, which its definition means something for something, tit for tat. It's retributive justice. This idea reinforces thinking of the need of the Latin phrase lex talionis, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, murder for murder. See, we sometimes still hang on to these Latin phrases of the word because it reminds us how long we've actually been thinking like this. It's heavily influenced our culture and has so for thousands of years. This view has a zero tolerance policy on life. And this view is not just rooted in history, it's sometimes rooted inside of us. So often what comes out of our children's mouth is, that is not fair. Mommy, that's not fair. And we tend to continue to say that as adults. But Jesus took the conventional quid pro quo method of treating people and turned it on its head in Matthew 5, which I encourage you to go read later today. Matthew 5, he's basically, it's when he's saying, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. In our society, it's only been in the last 20 years that an idea of restorative justice has been brought back up, specifically within our criminal justice system. Restorative justice is a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused or revealed by criminal behavior, repairing it. In 1995, the Catholic bishops of New Zealand, they wrote a letter to their people stating that their entire prison system should be based on restorative justice instead of retributive. They said this, 
As teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hold that compassion, mercy where appropriate, and forgiveness leading to a reconciliation lie at the heart of a fair and just criminal system. They said even the worst of offenders remain children of God. Even the worst of offenders remain children of God. Their letter fell on dead ears. See, because we live in a world of karma, we live in a world of counting, tit for tat, restorative justice makes no sense in this world. See, because restorative justice views violence and community decline and fear-based responses as indicators of broken relationships. It offers a different response, and namely, it is that to restore those that have gone wrong. This idea is also found in Scripture. One specific case is in Ezekiel 16, which I sat on my couch yesterday and read it. Again, as I was preparing, preparing it just brought me to tears because it's a beautiful story of restorative justice where God is dealing with the horrible sins of the Hebrew people. And their punishment from God is in the form of consequence. And those consequences, though, that God brings down upon them, it has teaching power. It's meant for change. The judgment is not an eternal punishment, but one that will eventually lead them back to relationship and to restoration again. See, after God lists all their sins, and and there are many, in verse 63, he spent about 60 verses talking about the sins. In verse 63, God says, Nevertheless, I will earnestly remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. It goes on to say, And you shall know, you shall understand, you shall realize that I am the Lord, that you may earnestly remember and be ashamed and confounded and never again open your mouth because of your shame when I have forgiven you all that you have done, all that you have done. Richard Rohr points out about that text that sometimes our shame and our silence and our confusion is due to the fact that we realize that God keeps God's covenant with us despite our brokenness. Ezekiel mentions that word restore six times. This restoring you with God's love will sometimes reduce us to confusion. Anytime you do something wrong to somebody else, you speak ill of them or you hurt them, and that person chooses to show back up in your life, Sometimes you feel something called remorse, and that's that feeling of shame, of silence, and of confusion because we just don't like to be loved unearned. The very notion of grace, that is what breaks down quid pro quo thinking. You have to experience that, though. When people sin, all God does is love them more. There is a fire mentioned over and over in Scripture. It's there. But every time it's used, it is not a torturing fire. It is a purifying fire. Even in John, John says, And the Holy Ghost shall baptize you with fire. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But the root of that word fire that they're using there means purify. It's a beautiful metaphor Our Catholic priest, Richard Rohr, says that is where the Catholics get this idea of purgatory. Church leaders, see, they created these various intermediate states between here and hell, like limbo and purgatory. Limbo became the destination of the noble pagans, of the unbaptized infants. Limbo was conceived of as a benign place in which neither the pain of eternal suffering nor the bliss of heavenly joy was available. 
Its primary purpose was to make the dreadful theology of everlasting judgment less guilt-producing for those who administered it. Its secondary purpose, however, was to keep the bar of judgment high enough to continue to build the authority of that religious system. Now, purgatory, on the other hand, purgatory was created, as its name suggests, to be a place of purging. As such, this option offered everyone a potential way out of eternal punishment. This was said to be the price that our own misdeeds required us to pay once we have then suffered long enough and thus were thought to have paid the price that our evil lives deserved, then we could escape that torture and be welcomed into heaven as purged or cleansed and obviously repentant people. It's so noteworthy that C.S. Lewis, our famed evangelical, the hero of many evangelicals everywhere, C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory, and he wrote about it in his book, A Grief Observed, which is the journals that he wrote after he lost his wife in a, a tragic death to cancer. He says this in speaking of his wife after death. He says to God, how do I know that all her anguish is past? I never believed before I thought it immensely improbable that the faithfulest could leap straight into perfection and peace the moment death rattled in the throat. It would be wishful thinking with a vengeance to take that belief up now. H, his wife, H was a splendid thing, a soul straight and bright and tempered like a sword, but not a perfected saint. A sinful woman married to a sinful man, two of God's patients not yet cured. I know there are not only tears to be dried, but stains to be scoured. The sword will be made even brighter, but oh God, tenderly, tenderly. Already month by month and week by week, you broke her body at the wheel while she still wore it. Is it not yet enough? Is it not yet enough? See, life after death was indeed purgative for many Catholics and for Lewis himself. Unless we as Protestants say, well, those are not our ideas, we came up with our own and the idea of the age of accountability, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with, and then this other idea of judgment according to knowledge. See, we are deeply intuiting something. There is something driving us to say we cannot reconcile that all people are deserving of eternal damnation. They were and we are trying to reconcile a sometimes very evil world and a sometimes very evil people with a very loving God. At least with purgatory, it was the desire held for us all to eventually be fully human, that we would all be eventually won over by the grace of God, that we would all eventually be whole. Purgatory was love. It was a correctional process. Now, for many of us today, it's not so much that we know where hell is or how hell works, but we sure know who deserves to be there, right? It's our enemies. It's the ones that we can't look in the face because of the depth of their hate or their sin. It is for the murderer. It is for Hitler. Hitler deserves to be in hell for sometimes his unspeakable treatment and torture and killing of the Jewish men and women, which I have to point out that the theology that most of us held or maybe still hold does not allow those killed Jewish men and women to be welcomed into heaven. They, because their lack of acceptance of Jesus, would also be in our version of hell right alongside Hitler. And if that doesn't give you pause, I don't know what will. 
We know hell is for ISIS. It's for the rapist. It's for the killer. It's for the child molester and the abuser. It is for the men and women that I look at every time I go to prison. They are the demons of this earth. They are the dragons that slay with their hands and their mouths and their lives. See, the first time I went to prison, I expected to feel disgust or anger. Or really, I expected to not feel anything at all towards them except good of myself for going and choosing to bless them, these wicked men and women. That's not what I found. I looked into their eyes, and I saw the eyes of a child. I saw the eyes of a human, a broken human. Yes, yes. One who had committed and brought about hell to this earth, yes. But did I want to turn my face away? No. Did I want to walk away or push them away? No. I wanted to pull them in like a child to a mother and say to them, somehow you've forgotten. Or maybe you never knew who you actually are, a beloved child of God. The same experience happened when we took another woman for our church whose brother had been murdered. We took her to prison, and after we got back, she emailed us this. She said, this month is seven years since my brother was murdered. I have struggled with knowing I need to forgive and being able to actually say the words and mean them. Now, especially when we were at the prison sumpter, I felt like I was looking into the eyes of a dragon to find there was no fire and no need to slay him. There was less of a demon and more of a fallen human than I had ever pictured in my mind. I felt more compassion than I expected to and more courage to follow through with what my heart has been convicted to do. Now, if we, if we can find that compassion when looking our murderers in the eyes, I have to believe, I intuit at the depth of my being that God has and is capable of so much more. That it's the God in me that is bringing this compassion out. See, most of us are more loving than the God we've been presented with. Most of us are more loving than the God we think we're serving so do I believe in a place of endless, endless torture? No. No. Do I believe in the grace shown in Jesus Christ? Yes. A grace that is not complete until the lost sheep is found, until the prodigal son comes home. New Testament scholar Dale Allison put it, I do not know what befell Mother Teresa of Calcutta when she died, nor what has become of Joseph Stalin, but the same thing cannot have come upon both. So do I believe that Hitler puts a gun in his head and then wakes up on the other side of this life and sees God and God's like, it's fine, no big deal. No, no, the hell in which Hitler created in this life, I believe that his biological death does not relieve him of. I think he will probably wake up on the other side of death and he will face the, face the same hellish circumstances that he left here. But I also think his work will continue. I challenge you and I challenge me. We're so often quick to name the names of who deserves to be there, but that won't get us very far. And frankly, it puts us too close to the judgment seat and that is not where we sit. We sit at the table. We sit in communion with Christ and with all of creation. See, this is not just a different belief about hell. This is a different belief about God. See, I believe we serve a benevolent God. 
and this is a benevolent universe. It is the belief that the scope of God's love is unlimited and that God's will to save everyone will be unthwarted. Now there is anger. Jesus says, be angry and sin not. Anger does have its place. Also, there is judgment and there are consequences. Abraham Heschel says, when anger is recognized as an aspect of the divine pathos, we can understand it as instrumental. Its intent is to chasten, to cleanse, to bring about repentance, and ultimately to redeem. As Heschel observes, anger's purpose and consummation is its own disappearance. Now let's look quickly at 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then on to verse 11. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love of God that God has for us. God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. We may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We are not afraid of judgment because as he is, so we shall be. See, I believe we are in a Christ-making universe. We are being perfected. We will continue to be purified in the refiner's fire until we come out as gold. See, judgment only prevails until its purposes are fulfilled. Its purposes are fulfilled, but love never fails. Love will prevail forever. Justice requires both reconciliation and restoration. See, we believe that we are born the beloved children of God. And then, yes, we take this journey, and it includes estrangement from God. It includes this feeling of separation. It includes for some of us, really for all of us, some type of hell that we have to live in and live through. But I believe in the end, we are still the beloved children of God. We will remain that. God's justice is altogether merciful, even as God's mercy is altogether just. See, judgment begins now, not after death. That verse said, we are the sanctuary of God. God abides in us. It is here inside of us, this day of judgment. That comes when you and I can make peace with ourselves. And this is gonna happen over and over and over as we grow and mature. And then as we recognize that every act whether it's individual or corporate, it must be judged as right or wrong based solely on whether it enhances life or it diminishes your life or the life of another. If my action diminishes another, then it also diminishes me. 
A diminished life is never the place where holiness will be found. Diminished lives will never be loving lives. And I dare say that diminished lives are living in hell right here and now. But enhancement of life is the goal. Awareness of the beloved is the goal. Love is the goal. We talk about it. It is our vision statement here, loving God, loving self, and loving others. See, I have no sense that we leave our work here and after death don't pick it up on the other side. I also believe God's judgment towards our wrongs is not final, but it is correctional. So there is life here. And there will be life after. In Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, the character Miss Maudie says, those are just some kind of men who, who are so much worrying about the next world, they've never learned to live in this one. And you can look down the street and see the results. In 1998, the Pope said, heaven and hell are not geographical. They are states of consciousness. And that resonates with me because I believe and have experienced heaven on this side of it and hell on this side of death. And if we choose hell here, and many do, I think we will experience loss, we'll, we'll experience suffering and anguish and fear and longing, but I believe the God in us will keep wooing and loving us and purifying us until we choose life. Winston Churchill says, if you're going through hell, keep going keep going. So at the very least, I hope we choose life now and will continue with life after death. So later on this afternoon, I'm going to send you this reading list and this resource list, and I hope that you will look into this for yourself. These ideas of heaven and hell are also very closely associated with the idea of salvation, which in turn, again, rests upon what we actually believe about God and what we believe about humanity. And I'm going to leave that for Stan to talk to you about next week. <laughs> I hope you have questions after today, because I still do. I still do. But I hope that we can continue to journey together on this topic, to search for truth. And in the meantime, to live in a way that brings about heaven upon this earth by loving ourselves and loving others, and thus by loving God, and then equally to do our best to eradicate the hell that we see here. I think if we live like that, it will serve us all well here and as we pass from this life to the next. I'd love it as we close today if I could just sing this song over us as our benediction. It's an old spiritual. It says, Beams of heaven as I go through this wilderness below guide my feet in peaceful ways turn my midnights into days when in the darkness i would grope faith always sees a star of hope and soon from all life's griefs and danger, I shall be free someday. I do not know how long twill be, nor what the future holds for me. But this I know if Jesus leaves.
I guess I have to study more for next week. <laughs> One more time. Thank that you. was tremendous. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Have a great week.